Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Ezekah in Ephraim's Demim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had a bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out out to, to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants." But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now, David was the son of an Ephraite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to battle, and the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab the firstborn, and next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. Forty days, for forty days the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to David, his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also, take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he went to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage baggage, and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down, and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? 
I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke the same way. And the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go fight against the Philistines to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man from a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord, who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And, David said to, and the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of the hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling, And with a stone, and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sha'arim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I don't know. And the king said, Inquire whose boy the son is. And as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him. 
and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. The word of the Lord. Y'all should give Joseph a hand after that reading, huh? I mean, that is the most scripture that I think we've read continuously in the service since I've been here. Great job, brother. Uh, Well, that is the story of David and Goliath. Uh, One of those stories that we're going to be talking about today that I believe is probably the most famous and yet most misunderstood story that we find in the Bible, this story about David versus Goliath. Uh, You'll notice uh, as we look through this that um, a number of people have spoken about David and Goliath. You probably hear David and Goliath mentioned all the time. Uh, And it's not just sporting events, right, where you have some great team that faces a lesser team and they say, oh, this is one of those defeats that really looks like a David versus Goliath. In fact, uh, just recently, Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book entitled David and Goliath. Now, when he writes this book, he's mainly concerned with misguided assumptions about incarceration, about classroom sizes for schools and that sort of thing. But he begins by saying that we've really misunderstood the story, the story of David and Goliath. So he's not alone in this. But he claims that Goliath likely had a poor eyesight and was weighed down by the weight of his armor, while David was more agile as a warrior and had a gun-like sling, which was an advantage. In other words, he attempts to explain why David's underdog status was actually appealing according to yet-to-date underappreciated advantages that he had over disadvantages of Goliath. In other words, there's really an explanation to be had about why David won. We haven't really appreciated within the biblical text the kinds of advantages that this man actually had. Well, Christians can misunderstand this story as well, though. I don't think that Malcolm gets it right, but we as Christians can get it wrong. In fact, um, Uh, Though Malcolm does consider himself, I found out, to be Mennonite, so um, I like his writing. I'm grateful for that. But when I visited Israel, I stood in what we believe is the Valley of Elah, where this battle takes place. And I listened as a preacher was preaching about this text, and he was speaking about it. And he encouraged all of us to go and take five stones from the brook. I'm sure we were thinking that these were stones that perhaps David might even looked over when he was fighting. Um, Apparently, they bring out a fresh load every week for all the tourists. But we took our five stones from the brook, and he said he wants us to write the names of the Goliaths that God would have us slay. Now, it was a wonderfully inspiring message that could have been amened in any synagogue. But is that the meaning of the story? Well, we're back in our new series, David, an ordinary man who became an extraordinary king. This week, we're in 1 Samuel 17. Now, just to catch you up to speed, uh, Israel's first king, Saul represented a kind of worldly leadership. See, Israel desired a king that would go before her and fight for her in battle. And Saul fit the part. He was tall. He came from a respected family. He was well-armed. He was ready for the part. But in 1 Samuel 16, God rejected Saul for his disobedience. And he anointed David, who looked so ordinary as the youngest son of an ignoble family from a backwoods town of Bethlehem. But we pick up this week with David, this man who has just been anointed as a spirit-anointed king of God to fight for Israel, who is going to face Goliath of Gath, a Philistine. Now, if you're reading through 1 Samuel, 
and you get to this title, Goliath of Gath, it's going to remind you, hopefully, of the Philistines and the way that they have been at odds with Israel throughout. In fact, if you look back at 1 Samuel 4, you'll notice that the Philistines there captured the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, That represented God's presence with God's people. They had stolen this Ark. And in 1 Samuel 5, they had the audacity to place this Ark, representing God's glory, next to Dagon and his idol. When they woke up in the morning, they went into the temple and found that Dagon was face down before this ark. And they thought, oh, it must have been the wind. And so they picked him up because they had to pick their God up. And when they did, they went to sleep and they woke up the next morning and came in again. And he was down on his face again with his hands cut off. It was at that point that they realized that maybe it's not a good thing to steal the ark of the Lord. And they mailed it back. And it was at that point that Samuel called the people of God to cry out to God for deliverance from the Philistines. And we find that God came down and he destroyed the Philistines without the Israelites having to lift a sword. Yet again, God delivered his people. You would think that Israel would remember the Philistines. You would think that they would remember the salvation and deliverance that God brought them from Egypt. And yet here when we find them today in this valley as they are facing this giant Goliath of Gath from the Philistines, it seems as though they have forgotten God. So don't miss this. The story of David and Goliath, it isn't about principles for entrepreneurs to pick themselves up from adverse circumstances, as Gladwell says. And it's not meant to be a kind of eye of the tiger moment where you get theme music that's supposed to cause you to sort of pick up yourself by your bootstraps and do something great for God. Now, I think verse 47 highlights the main point of our text this morning. 1 Samuel 17, 47 It says, and that all this assembly, it's done that they may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. The Lord does not need our swords and our spears. The Lord saves his people. Our big idea this morning is this, that God's deliverance glories in his power and wisdom, not man's. God's deliverance glories in his power and wisdom, not man's. Now, the first thing we'll see is, we'll find in verses 1 to 11, uh, we are not going to read all through that text again. We're going to be hitting uh, points here and there. So keep your Bibles open. Uh, We're first going to be looking at verses 1 to 11, where we see that Israel fears the great Goliath of Gath. Now, thus far, we've been in the territory of Benjamin. But this scene is set in Judah at Saca. It's about 12 miles west of Bethlehem in the Valley of Elah. And we find that Israel is is lined up for war on one side of a valley while the Philistines are on the other. And in the middle, there's a kind of stage for battle. Now, here you'll notice that the the camera quickly zooms in, in verse 4, on one figure, Goliath. And it says this, And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath whose height was six cubits and a span, and he had a bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. Now, Goliath of Gath is called a champion. This is a word that literally means a man between two. He's a trained warrior who would have fought to the death in representative combat with an opponent from a foreign army to say bloodshed. In other words, 
He would say, you send your best, I'm our best, and whoever wins, the other, everybody else will serve. That way not everybody has to die today. Now everything about this description of this Philistine sets him apart as the epitome of this world's power and wisdom. Uh, You'll notice the narrator takes great pains to show his greatness. He is six cubits, which would make him nine feet tall. Uh, Now, later manuscripts say he might have been closer to 6'9", but any way you cut it, this guy was super tall compared to your average Jewish guy that was about 5'6", 5'9". Either way, he is much taller, even taller than King Saul, king of Israel, who is also mentioned as being tall. Do you remember this? Now, some like Peter Lightheart make much in this description of the Hebrew word used for bronze for the helmet here because it sounds a lot like the word for serpent. They also emphasize that his armor uh, is used, it's a word that's used for scales that are over him, kind of scales that you would find on a fish, the same scales that you would find on a snake. Well, that doesn't seem like the simple reading of this text. Now, this text seems to focus more on the size and power of this warrior who's wearing 110 pounds of body armor and wielding a spear with a 15-pound head. And not only that, it seems that he's equipped in the latest, most sophisticated technological arms of his day. He is a fierce combination of the world's power and wisdom. He's kind of like a combination of the Hulk and Iron Man. And if you're a Marvel fan, you know that's called the Hulkbuster have boys in my home. I know these things. And notice that he's taunting all of Israel in verse 8, shouting, why have you come up to draw for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? So choose a man from yourselves and let him come down to me. And if he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now you'll remember that Israel chose Saul because he was tall in 1 Samuel 10.23. He was properly armed in 13.22. And thus fit the role of a king who would go before the people like they desired in 820 to fight for them. This is the moment. This is Saul's moment. This is where he has been called and chosen to go and fight for Israel. And yet here, though Israel chose Saul because they wanted him to be like the king, like the nations to fight for them, we find that Saul is terrified of Goliath along with all of Israel. Where is Saul? Saul should be out there, but Saul is hiding in the tents with everyone else. Why? Well, Because he doesn't have a heart after God's own heart. That's Saul's problem. Is It's not the enemy and the size of the enemy. It's his heart for God. Now, you know what's noticeably absent from this scene. A heart from God and God's covenant with God's people. 
I mean, has Israel forgotten how God delivered them from the Philistines in 1 Samuel 7? They cried out to God. God came down and destroyed them himself. Did they forget how God delivered them out of Egypt when Moses lifted up his staff and separated the Red Sea, delivered them to safety, and then flooded and then folded the waters down upon the great Egyptian army, giving them the victory without them lifting a sword? They've clearly forgotten the God of Israel who saves in Exodus so that they may know that there is no one like our God. Did you know there's no one like our God? There's no one like our God. And don't miss this. If you forget the fearsome greatness of your God, this world will become a scary, terrifying place in a split second. And that is even for those who are well armed. This is a man who is terrified, is a people who are terrified because they have lost sight of God. Now just hear me. The taunts of sin, death, and the devil are enough to keep you from getting out of bed in the morning if you are left to yourself. Without remembering who God is and who you are with God, it will leave you sensing that your marriage is hopeless, that loneliness is your great enemy, that it will destroy you, that you'll never be able to get a job after you graduate, that a bad grade means that you have no future, that the sin that enslaves you cannot be overcome. And a lack of the fear of the Lord makes us cowards before the world. In this story, we are not meant to look at ourselves as David who has yet to show up. We are meant to look at ourselves like Israel who is running and trembling in our tents without God's help. Our Saul-like worldly saviors cannot deliver us. But catch this. Second, David does not fear Goliath of Gath. There's one man who does not fear Goliath. It is David in verses 12 to 27. Now, you'll notice that in verses 12 to 18, David enters the scene. And we're reminded that David is the youngest of eight brothers, likely uh, not yet 20 years old because you weren't fighting in the army until you were 20. Now, only the three oldest, Eliab, that tall firstborn son that Samuel chose over to choose David, and then Abinadab and Shammah, those three brothers, they followed Saul into battle, leaving the other brothers at home. Verse 15 highlights this motif of David as the shepherd that we're going to see gradually unfold and grow with the story. Now Jesse sent David back and forth with provisions for his brothers. So he's going back and forth from the war field to the, the place where he was shepherding his sheep. And for 40 days and nights, the Philistines taunted Israel. Day and night. Story is, Philistine comes out and he taunts them the Israelites run, scared, cry, shake, all of that, and then repeat the next day until verse 23 says, David heard him. Seems to be the first time David hears Goliath. And notice the men are still fleeing and much afraid and say in verse 25, says this in verse 25, and the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. Don't miss this. Israel looks like worldly cowards here because of where their eyes are set. Do you see it? They see the danger of this terrifying giant before them, terrified by this world. 
They also see the rewards that King Saul offers. The riches, his daughter's hand in marriage, tax-exempt status, who wouldn't want that? But what's missing? God. God's not mentioned in this chaotic mess until David speaks in verse 26. And here you'll notice he is reorienting the whole conversation. He's saying, I want you to see the world in a different way. And this is what it says in verse 26. It says, and David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? I love what Dale Ralph Davis says in his commentary. He says, David injects the first theological note into this narrative. You know, everyone's sizing up the rewards. Are they worth the risk of fighting Goliath? I mean, there's a lot of money. His daughter, she's not that cute, but you do get to be like related to royalty. And, and then there's all tax-exempt status. And we know that sometimes Saul takes a lot of money. I don't know. I mean, it's a good deal, but is it worth risking my life? And yet here you find David show up, and where are his eyes? They are immediately, directly, strategically on God. See, David doesn't see Goliath as a giant. He sees him as a Gentile. That's how he sees him. He sees him as God sees him. He's uncircumcised, meaning that he is outside of the covenant that Yahweh has made with Israel. And I love this. David says, I don't care how tall Goliath of Gath is. Have you forgotten how great the God of Israel is? See, Israel sees Goliath as defying the enemies, the armies of Israel in verse 25. Did you see that? All of Israel. Goliath is defying the armies of Israel, verse 25. But in verse 26, David charges him with something different, with defying the armies of the living God. Do you see it? David's faith in the living God changes the way that he views the whole world. Faith in the living God causes giant enemies to shrink and cowardly armies to look indestructible. See, forgetting God, it can lead to a kind of paralyzing fear. We need to make sure that we don't forget that we serve the living God. We need to make sure that our eyes are on Him at all times. See, faith in the living God says that I really can have victory over sin in my life. Is that where you're at this morning? Trusting that you are fighting, maybe you're facing difficulties, and maybe you're even seeing some ways in which sin is seeming to have victory over your life, but you trust that you have what it takes to fight sin, not because of what's in you, but because of who's in you, that you have the Holy Spirit lead, guiding, and directing you? Is that you? Have you faith in the living God or have you forgotten the living God? See, forgetting the living God leads to feeling as though sin is too powerful, too wise for you to fight. That's not remembering who God is. Faith in the living God says sickness and even sickness that leads to death cannot separate us from the love of God or eternal life and those indestructible rewards that await God's people. But forgetting the living God leads to a terror of sickness and death. Imagining that God cannot hold our future safe through sickness and even death. Faith in the living God causes us to believe the thousands of lies, or forgetting God causes us to believe in the thousands of lies that Satan tells us about how he will prevail. Preventing us from making it faithfully to the end that we might come before Christ without any reason to be ashamed. But faith tells us that Christ has already crushed the head of the serpent. That's what faith tells us. Faith in God and not forgetting God 
will absolutely set the trajectory for your whole life for eternity. I was talking to a a man the other day um, some time ago, and he had a life that had been absolutely consumed with pursuing a woman and companionship. And he had an incident that we were counseling him through, and it was interesting that in the midst of that, he realized that his whole life for decades had been consumed with this pursuit of a, a godlike desire for companionship. And he had become angry and bitter at God and given up on God because God had not given him the relationship that he thought that he deserved. And what he realized in the midst of all of this is that he had gotten so far from looking to and trusting God that he was far from being able to believe that God actually was for him. And the problem was not that God was not for him. It was that God was not serving him in the way that he wanted. What we found at the end of the day is if we look back at his life, it was filled with carnage. The wake of his life was filled with carnage and sorrow and despair. And we in that moment just were able to to see that, that he needed to repent of that and live for a different way of life. A way of life that trusted God, that did not forget him, that believed that God had not forgotten him, that trusted that the God who delivered him in the past would deliver him in the future. And it was in that moment that he repented. And we're praying that God changes his life and that he can have a future and a hope. But that future and hope is only for those who have faith in the living God, a God who lives for them day in and day out. So I'm just curious this morning, as your life characterized, as you look back at it, by someone who has faith in the living God, who's able to do more than what we think or can imagine, or is it actually shaped and filled with carnage because you have forgotten God and you've not trusted Him and your life is full of the carnage that has come from that? See, forgetting God will leave carnage in the wake of your life, but God desires more for His people. Notice here third, David's faith reaches two rejected kings in verses 28 to 40. See, both King Saul and David's brother Iliam Fill the bill of kings. They are tall, regal-looking guys according to the worldly standards. Even Samuel was fooled by Eliam. But what's striking is how both of these rejected kings sat idly by as Goliath taunted them day and night for 40 days. Did you catch that? Who would represent Israel before their enemies? Both respond to the commotion that David causes in the camp And notice the different responses. First, notice that David rejected is rejected by Eliab. Did you see that? He's rejected by his brother. See, his brother accuses him of having an evil heart in verse 28 when he hears that David is telling everyone that they should fight this Philistine. See, God chose David for his heart, but his brother sees what God sees as good as evil. God was looking for a man after his own heart. David is that man. His brother says, you have an evil heart. Who's right, God or or his brother? Well, it's God. And he asks, who David left the sheep with in the wilderness? So his heart is obviously bent in ways that are not godly. I think this shows that his brother clearly doesn't have the heart of God and the heart that God was looking for in a king. But isn't, is he asked David who left, who he left the sheep with in the wilderness? Isn't his brother really actually saying something that's pretty ironic? I mean, isn't this exactly what he and Saul have done with the greater sheep, the people of Israel, and not going out and fighting for them? 
Sin makes us skepticals, skeptical of others, doesn't it? Have you ever noticed that? You get caught up in sin in your life, and before you know it, you become very accusatory of others in their lives. And here I think David's brother is doing just that. See, untrustworthy people can't trust others. And only those who fear God can truly trust others and trust themselves to others. But second, did you notice Saul? Saul calls for David as well when he hears the commotion. And David says to him in verse 32, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with the Philistine. At which point David hands him his resume in verses 34 to 37. Did you see that resume? Pretty impressive if you're looking to be a a warrior. He says to Saul, your servant, verse 34, used to keep sheep for his father. In fact, that was like actually last night, but you know, let's not be specific about details. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of the mouth. And if he arose against me and had not yielded yet, right, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant was struck down. He has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Did you catch that? David says, as a shepherd, I've killed lions and bears and taken lambs out of their mouths. He looks so much like a new Adam exercising authority over the animals. And I love the image that he gives. If the best fought back, if this beast that came against him were to fight back and resist, did you see what he did? He grabbed it by the beard to strike and kill him. That's a man. We got some men in the room. That's a man. That's an impressive resume. But don't miss David's main point. The same God who delivered him from lions and bears would deliver him from the hand of this Philistine. Goliath defied the armies of the living God. And God would vindicate his name and his people, the sheep of his pasture. This shepherd, this king, had confidence in his gods. David's fearless because of God's resume, not David's resume. See, David's not fearless because he has a great resume that says, I kill lions and tigers and bears, oh my, right? No, David's fearless because David's God has a great resume of delivering not only David from beasts, but Israel from Egypt and the Philistines, and the list goes on. See, David is God's spirit-anointed king sent to deliver his people. Now last week we saw that David prepares the way for Christ who is our great spirit anointed king. But catch how David looks like Christ here as he fights the forces of evil in verses 41 to 47. Fourth, David and Goliath fight a cosmic battle. David and Goliath fight a cosmic battle. Now you'll notice how theological Goliath gets when David shows up. All of a sudden God is in view. The battle isn't just about two men representing their people. There is a cosmic battle of the gods at play. And look what he says, beginning in verse 41. This is what he says. He says this. He says, And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog 
that you come to me with sticks. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beast of the field. And then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give, it, he will give you into our hand. See, Goliath despise, he despises David when he shows up. And just to give Goliath a fair shake, he's been prepping the pool for a major event, right? I mean, he's been, he's been at the box offices, he's been pumping the tickets, he's been talking about the kind of trash that he's, he's going to give Israel for 40 days and 40 nights, hoping for an epic standoff that his grandkids would be talking about with their kids. And when young David pops out, Dressed as a shepherd, not a warrior, with a staff in one hand and a sling in the other, he's thinking to himself, this, this is not the battle that I've been touting. Are you kidding? Of all the people that you have and King Saul, this is what you are sending to fight me. And he looks utterly weak and foolish compared to the powerful and wise Philistine warrior. But remember, David killed lions and bears with his bare hands. So when he asks David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? David's answer is, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I've I've killed lions and bears and yeah, I mean like a dog. Yes, exactly. See, notice how Goliath of Gath, a worshiper of Dagon, curses David by his gods in verse 43. And Goliath doesn't merely represent the Philistines, he represents his gods. Which makes you wonder if his future is going to be like Dagon's back in 1 Samuel 5. Now you'll remember how Dagon fell on his face before the glory of God and the ark in 1 Samuel 5. But here again, the battle is spiritual. And David responds, finally, someone understands me. Thank you, Goliath. This is exactly what you have said. It is a battle between our gods. And in verse 45, he responds to this Philistine saying this, You come to me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And it's the Lord this day who will deliver you into my hand. Not only that, I'm going to strike you down and I'm going to cut off your head. This is not your average little shepherd boy. See, David is God's spirit-anointed king or Messiah, who comes to fight as a representative head of God's people against not just the physical enemies of God, but the spiritual ones who would enslave his people. See, Paul wants to remind us that we too need to be reminded constantly that we are not merely fighting against enemies of the flesh. The things that we struggle against, the the, the things that cause us to stay up at nights, and so often They are things like, how is my bank account doing? How am I doing in school? How is my marriage? But here what we find is we need to be reminded constantly that there is a spiritual world at play that we need to be absolutely aware of. 
We need to be constantly aware of who God is and who we are in Christ. Paul reminds us of this in Ephesians 6, 10 to 12, where he says, Be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might, and put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand up against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. David is saying, this is a spiritual war that is taking place. In other words, we as Christians need to likewise be aware that our marriages, church, friendships, jobs, our very lives are under attack by spiritual forces. And the answer for us isn't to assert our resume of our lions and bears. That's not the point of David. He's not saying, here's here's how you use a resume to win victories for Christ. No, we find that instead, we need to look to David in verses 49 to 58. Fifth, David crushes the head of Goliath and cuts it off. David crushes the head of Goliath and cuts it off. The actual fighting between David and Goliath was startlingly short and only covers one verse, verse 49. There's been all this buildup, and then here comes the fight, and you're thinking it's completely not weighted. There's a weight advantage here. There's a height advantage. There's a technological advantage. There's no way that this little guy should have any kind of like uh, ability to beat this bigger guy. And yet we find in verse 49, it is very short, and you'd expect the shortness to be on the side of Goliath. But verse 49 says this, And David put his hand in his bag, and he took out a stone, and slung it, and struck the Philistine on his forehead. On his forehead, the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. The end. Well, then fifty-one kind of cleans it up a little bit and says, "Oh yeah." Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of his sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it, just like he said he would. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistine as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that he wounded the Philistines, and they fell on the way from Sherim as far as Gath and Ekron. I mean, it's amazing that three times the material is given to the trash-talking as the victory. It's kind of like my basketball game. I'm best at the trash-talking, and then we'll play a little bit. But that's exactly what happens here. David took out a stone and with one shot took less than one second to drop Goliath like he was hot. That's about the speed of of that rock slinging through the air and hitting him in the head. One second and done. Shortest boxing match that I think we have recorded is like 11 seconds. Uh, Nine of that was in the approach. And David took out a stone and with one shot he drops Goliath. And then David ran over and took the Philistine's sword, his own sword, and cut off his head. See, the Philistines fled when their champion was defeated, but the men of Israel and Judah chased the enemy all the way back to Goliath's house, killing them all. Now now think about this. These are the cowards that have been trembling for 40 days and all of a sudden are excited, empowered, and running for victory. So what's the point of this? Is that you too can go out and slay your giants? Is it meant to give you confidence Maybe confidence to weak underdogs when they face powerful giants in their lives. I think the point actually comes from verse 47. That God's deliverance 
glories in his power and wisdom, not man's. God does not save with swords and spears. God saves by his own power. See, Jesus is our representative king and warrior who fought for you and me to bring us to God. He is the great God-man who came to fight for us. And we were not merely weak when he came to save us. We were not merely foolish. We were actually dead as Gentiles who were outside of the covenant of God. We were far from God. We were the enemies of God. We were the ones who should be running from Jesus. But in Colossians 2, 13-14, Paul writes this, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, being Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling that record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands that He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed on the cross the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. Did you catch that? It was through the supreme symbol of weakness and foolishness in Jesus' day, the cross, that He chose to fight for His people against sin, death, and the devil. And Jesus beat Satan with His own stick just like David beat Goliath. See, Jesus crushed Satan's head at the cross just as was promised in Genesis 3.15. So the point of David and Goliath is that Israel needed a spirit-anointed king to rescue and deliver them, and God sent a king who looked weak and foolish to deliver his people. So if you're here this morning, and you're feeling utterly weak and utterly powerless, and thinking that maybe you are not the kind of person that has a resume for God, I want you to know that you're exactly the kind of people that God calls to himself. God has always been in the business of using the weak and the foolish. He's also been using them for the very strategic purpose of making it very clear that he is the one that is to be glorified in his salvation. So if you're here and you're a non-Christian this morning, I, I just want to encourage you that, that maybe as you're looking to Jesus, you're thinking that he is weak and foolish and you're feeling you are weak and foolish and maybe that's not a good team. But you need to know this morning that you do not, we do not serve a Savior who died and is dead. We serve the living God who has a living King, Jesus, who was raised from the dead. As a declaration of the very power of God and the wisdom of God, that his plans always succeed and that his power, it always wins and accomplishes what he sets forth to do. And so if you're this morning not a Christian and you're thinking to yourself, maybe it's not a good team, me weak, me foolish, Jesus weak, Jesus foolish, I would just tell you Jesus is not weak or foolish. He is the wisdom and power of God. He is the one who can bring about salvation in your life. So don't leave here today without talking to me or another Christian about what it would mean for you to become part of the people of Christ, the people of the man who came to die for you so that you can have new and eternal life. That's the God who has come to save and to love you. So if you're feeling utterly weak and foolish, it could be that you're in a perfect place to meet Christ as your great victorious warrior on your behalf who defeated sin, death, and the devil on the cross for you and for us. But brothers and sisters, this morning we need to be reminded, this is a message for Christians as well, that the Christian life is not about picking ourselves up by our bootstraps to build a resume of our great, God, our great works before God. And the Christian life is really so much about humble submission to a spirit-anointed king who came to lay down his life for his sheep as the good shepherd to heal our wounds. That's the nature of who Christ is. He is the one who came for the weak and the powerless and the feeble to save us 
Not only from others, but from ourselves and from sin, death, and the devil. And God still loves to show His power and wisdom through the weak and foolish who put their faith in Christ. So maybe this morning, you were here and you were feeling especially weak and foolish. Maybe it's depression that has you in bed in the morning and you, you realize that it's, it's only faith in Christ that can actually pull you out. And you, and you wonder as you're getting out, God, I think the victory today is just getting out of bed. I don't know that if you can actually use me for anything for the glory of your name. And yet we know we have this promise that, that God loves to show his power and his wisdom through the weak and the foolish things of this world. And you have no idea what God might use for you in your life and the weakness and the foolish that is you. And maybe you have a marriage that is struggling and needs Christ. And you're thinking to yourself, I feel so foolish, I don't know what to do. I feel so weak and powerless to help this situation. And you continue to go to seminars and you're reading all the books and you're thinking to yourself, I don't know what to do. And what you need in that moment is a fresh committedness to humility before Jesus Christ is your great King. Trusting that victory might not mean that your marriage gets better for a really long time, but that God is able to glorify himself even in your faithfulness in a difficult marriage where you're submitting yourself in weakness and humility and powerlessness before him, trusting him and him alone. And God will make much of himself even in that weakness, what feels like utter foolishness. Maybe it could be here today that you feel lonely and that you would be so much more glorified by God if you had the right spouse or the right friend. You feel weak. And today, Christ would say, I'm, I'm doing something to glorify myself in you through sanctification, through making you more holy, or maybe through just showing others how you can be faithful even when you're struggling with loneliness to make much of myself. What a beautiful picture that God gives us of the way that he can make much of himself through power and weakness as we are clinging to Christ and his cross. But not only that, know this, the Bible promises us that we have hope too. Do you remember how those soldiers just ran, ran in victory, trampling over the blood of Goliath and chasing the army down? Do you remember that? I think there's a a way in which by analogy, and this is a little more allegorical, and I don't like allegorical preaching, but there is a real sense in which I think we get a kind of picture of this in the New Testament. In the sense that Christ has won the victory for us, but we have not experienced the fullness of that victory yet. But we are promised that the fullness of that victory is coming so that our marriages might not feel like what they're supposed to be yet and our loneliness might not seem to be satisfied fully yet. It never will be until Christ comes back. There might be all kinds of things that make us feel weak and foolish and powerless and yet we are promised that there's another day that's coming. A day when we, like the Israelites, will be charging after the enemy when Jesus returns to take us up with himself forever when we are fully free from sin, death, and the devil. And Romans 16, 20 points to this where we are told the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Don't you long for the finality of that moment when we ultimately and finally put away what Satan has done and we glory in Jesus, our great victor. That's the day that we long for. So if you are feeling weak today, if you are feeling powerless, if you are feeling foolish, let me just encourage you, cling to Christ. A better day is coming. And that might be tomorrow, and that might be the last day, but we're promised a better future awaits. Let's pray.